Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome. This is Colleen O'Grady, the host of the Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. This is a gathering place for moms to be encouraged, nurtured, and inspired. Also, you'll learn the latest in teen research and trends and get practical parenting tips. You really can improve your relationship with your teen and enjoy the teenage years. Welcome back to the 123rd episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. I'm Colleen O'Grady, the host of the show. Today, we're going to talk about beliefs about motherhood that will rob you of your joy, like our teens should be perfect because naturally our parenting is too, or should at least look or sound or seem that way. Parenting causes perpetual exhaustion, dirty hair days, bad hair days, body confidence issues, and endless feelings of overwhelm. It also creates a need for nonstop caffeine and, of course, wine o'clock. Parenting is hard, and if you don't complain about it or feel miserable, exhausted, and stressed out most of the time, you're not one of the, quote, good moms. It's selfish to take care of myself, and I need to sacrifice everything for my family. Our guest today has so much wisdom to share with us. She has a powerful story and has lived her message. Heather Chauvin is a leadership coach who helps ambitious, overwhelmed women conquer their fears and become leaders at work and home. Drawing from her professional experience as a social worker and her life experiencing raising three boys, Heather created a signature approach to help her clients create and enjoy sustainability, profitability, and ease in business and life. She is the host of the Mom is in Control podcast, where she reveals her most vulnerable truths about womanhood, marriage, parenting, living through stage four cancer, and running a successful business without burning out. She released her first book, Dying to be a good mother in 2021. So welcome, Heather. Hello, Colleen. I'm excited for this conversation. I am too. So before we get started, I know you have three boys. And what are their ages? Yeah, the boy, they always change their age. And then every time I say this, (laughs) I always get confused. Um, They're 16, 11, and 8. You are a busy mom. (laughs) Yeah, the plate, the life is full, that's for sure. Yes. All right. Well, I loved your book. It's 
filled with so many, many powerful lessons for moms. But let's just kind of dive in here. Like you've had many challenges in your life, but on December 21st, 2013, you were diagnosed with cancer Mm -hmm. and later you found out it was stage four. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, it was actually really intriguing to me because I nine, so I was a mother for nine years before my cancer diagnosis and the youngest. So they were again, nine, like five and one when I was diagnosed and I jumped in to personal development, like parenting was the thing that cracked me open. I remember when I looked at my son, I was really like, I need to become the person that I most desire you to be. Cause I think if you ask any woman who is a caregiver, if you fail at caregiving in some capacity, you feel like you have failed as a human. And so I went into motherhood single. I was 18 years old and I felt like I was already failing. So I had nine years of trying to figure out my stuff. So I wasn't new to personal development. I wasn't new to spirituality, but the diagnosis definitely came by surprise, but I would say, you know, and then people wonder, well, how did it happen? Why did it happen? And so I'm always like, that's another conversation, but I definitely believe it came from self-neglect. There were signs for a very long time that my body was screaming at me to say like, please pay attention to me, please pay attention to me. And I bought into the cultural narrative that I didn't have time for myself. And if I did create any time for myself, I felt selfish. I felt guilt. Um, And I still feel guilty, by the way. I just don't allow the guilt to run my actions anymore. I, I sit with it kind of like, you know, a child screaming and you're like, I see you. I see you're having a, a big emotion right now and that's okay. And that's kind of how I treat my guilt. But yeah, when I was diagnosed, it was intriguing because it gave me permission. I was like, I'm done with my suffering. Like I remember a moment where I'm like, I will never feel like this again, beyond the fact that my life was at risk, but I'm like, I'm done. My suffering box is checked, check, check, check. I am done. And I think when we get done, I always say, I work a lot with women who are like just done with their own BS and they're just ready to surrender. And I had that moment walking out of the hospital when I went to the emergency room, I went there because my abdomen was swollen. And I thought, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe I have a gluten allergy or something. And I was just in such denial, but I also had mild back pain and I was chronically fatigued and I was barely hanging on. And I did seek, you know, professional help before I went to the emergency room. And the feedback I was receiving was kind of like, well, what do you expect? You're a mom. And I was like, yeah, I'm like, really? Like, that's it. Like, I'm just tired because I'm a mom. Like that's, that's the diagnosis. I'm like, so you're telling me life is supposed to feel like crap. Like you're just on the verge of a nervous breakdown all the time. That's not cool. That's not normal. And I was educated. I had a degree in social work and I worked in mental health and I'm like, this is awful that this is the conversation that people are having. But I also, this is the other interesting part I remember that night when I was diagnosed, they did a CT of my abdomen and they did blood work. And then when she came in the room and she said, Heather, you have cancer. My first response was like, I already knew. Mm. I already knew that I was sick. And 
you know, since that moment, I realized that that was like my intuitive knowing, trying to get my attention and I just neglected it. And I just kept pushing it off, pushing it off. But, and I write about it in the book where there's knowing of like, how did I know that? And it was almost like I just tried so hard to run away from my truth and my knowing. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey since then. Mm, Gosh. So why did you write the book? This book has been like, I don't want to say a problem child, but this book has been like that ache. Oh, I'm going to write a book someday. I'm going to write a book someday. But it was masked with a lot of resistance, a lot of stories, a lot of I can't. And, but it was that nagging feeling inside of me that wouldn't go away. And so I knew I didn't want to write the book about my cancer story. The title Dying to Be a Good Mother came from my TEDx talk that I did the same, um, the same title of Dying to Be a Good Mother. But it's not about me almost dying. It was about how the second I became a mother, I was told that I needed to die to be good. I needed to neglect myself. And I, I always knew that I wanted the reader to feel like they weren't alone and that they could learn through my story and that I would give them a few tips along the way of like, well, Heather, that's amazing, but where do I start? What do I do? So it's, it's a prescriptive memoir. So it's my story, but it also gives them, you know, some steps that they can start integrating into their own life. Um, but yeah, we all have a story inside of us. And I think the more we share openly and honestly, that's how we're going to change the world. Yeah. Well, you did a good job of combining your story with really rich and practical information. And it really did hold your attention. So as, so I would encourage the moms out here to, to read this book. It's, it's so validating and you and I really have so many passions that are the same, which is that I think these moms get such cultural messages that are so disempowering. Mm-hmm. And you talk about um, maternal exhaustion is, has become like a badge of honor. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I, you know, the interesting part is pre-children, which I mean, I was a teenager, um, I was 18 when I had my son. So previous to that, I was always labeled as this rebel, this like, you know, what do they call the women? Like you're bossy, right? Which means you're a leader, but you're bossy, you're know-it-all, you're this, you're that. And so I had a chip on my shoulder and the chip on my shoulder was always that I was questioning, like, why are we doing that? Why does that happen? And I always questioned why people did what they did. I always questioned certain things. And then when I became a mother, I had this, the questioner was still there, but then feeling, ultimately feeling like I was failing, I did what I was supposed to do to be good. So I had this, these conflicting inner values. And, but I remember this story that I tell in the book, somebody told me early on in motherhood to buy the cheap shampoo. They're like, Oh honey, Now you're going to have to buy the cheap shampoo because I liked to invest in my hair even, and I couldn't fathom. And I just think, are you kidding me? Are you really kidding me that I have to downgrade everything in my life because I'm a mother now. And the message was you got to give, 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 give. Everything is for that child now. 
And that questioner was still inside of me because I could logically see, well, if I'm taking away from myself over and over and over again, I know I'm going to become angry and resentful. So why would I want to project that onto my child? But I did what I was supposed to do because I wanted to fit in because I was afraid to fail. But it's also, you know, a courageous act to say that doesn't work for me. So as I continued on my parenting journey and the compound effect of the maternal exhaustion just grew and grew and grew, I started seeking professional help. And the professional help I was seeking was telling me, you're, you're a mother, what do you expect? Mm. And or, or the toxic wellness world, which was like, you got to do this, you got to invest in this. And I was like, I can't afford that. I can't afford that. No one ever taught me, you know, that boundaries are beautiful and healthy and it's okay to create space for yourself and you're not going to please everybody and you're going to make them upset and angry and that's okay. But we're fed this cultural story that, yeah, exhaustion equals success. And now I don't stand for that at all. And when people stand for that and you know, they're like, what's wrong with me and blah, blah, blah. And it's usually not clients. It's the people outside that refuse to do the work or invest. I'm like, nothing will change unless you do. And, you know, that's the revolution we're all looking for is the micro changes that we need to make at home. The government is not going to save us. Culture is not going to save us. But when we change the conversation collectively, like you and I having this conversation, more women saying, this is what I want to stand for. I'm like, yes. The more voices we have, the louder we get. And then you you take a stand for something and you embody your values. That's how we're going to change the culture. Yeah. And then I go even deeper where, you know, I went through a period where I felt, you know, the guilt, the survivor guilt mm. or the guilt of privilege and being able to do certain things. And I thought, how does the world benefit from you being disempowered? How does the world benefit by you being disempowered, exhausted, burnt out, overwhelmed? doesn't matter who you are. If you have the ability to do something and you're choosing not to because it's uncomfortable, that is selfish. That is selfish. So now I know I always say you either trigger or inspire people just by being yourself. That's good. And yeah. It might, you might trigger people because you live the opposite of the cultural expectation of who you need to be, but you may be inspiring them as well. Yeah. In my book, Dial Down the Drama, I talk about the powerless parenting messages, which we're talking about right here, which number one is that message, it's selfish to pay attention to me mm. when um, it's really the exact opposite. It's crucial to pay attention to you and you've, you've lived that story. Yeah. And so why do you think it's so hard for moms to just give up that self-sacrificing? And yet I loved what you said about the cup, that we need to do things from a full cup. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I like to tell a story. There's a few stories that I tell in the book, but you were either focused on what we don't want or what we want in our lives. And for a very long time, I was focused on what I didn't want and how crappy I felt because that's what everyone wanted to hear from me. Like, oh, how bad is it? How busy are you? However, like, you know, even talking about the last year, they're like, how's this been? And I'm like, 
probably way better than most because I've been in this shit show already seven years ago. And then I had to do it again and it felt like deja vu. And, you know, the lens that I live my life now is how good can it get? And so I tell people all the time, if your cup is full of guilt and your cup is full of overwhelm and your cup is full of shame and your cup is full of how tired am I? That's what you're full of. So when I was in my early days of trying to reverse engineer how I wanted to feel in my life, I remember looking at people that I assumed had energy or were happy. And two things that came to mind were one, people walking, like I would see them walking. And then, you know, people just spending time with their thoughts in a journal at a local, you know, coffee shop or whatever that was. And so I would start putting these things on my calendar. And I remember going for a walk, first of all, feeling like walking was useless because I was like, you should just run. Like, why do people just walk aimlessly with no destination? Like, this is so weird to me. I just couldn't comprehend. I'm like, I don't have time for this. I don't have time. Like my resistance to just walking. (laughs) Now I love it. I'm like, I'm going for a walk. And, you know, I understand the science behind it and all of that. Um, But I remember being at this coffee shop and you know, I'm thinking I'm going to go there. I'm going to restore. I'm going to feel so great. And my children were very young. I was still breastfeeding at the time. And I remember calling my husband when I was there. I couldn't even journal because I was crying so much. And people kept walking in that I knew. And I was like, oh my God, like it was just awful. And they're like, what's wrong? Like, I just feel so guilty. And I just had this breakdown. And you know, in hindsight, I realized that I wanted my cup to be full of ease and contentment and peace and space. But in order to do that, I had to kind of pour out what was in there. I didn't have to analyze it. I didn't have to, you know, know why I felt so guilty because my mother felt guilty and my grandmother felt guilty and cultural expectations. I just had to let it go. And then I just kept being consistent, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And I would do the things I didn't want to do. And then all of a sudden I'm like, of course, in the moment, I'm like, this sucks. And then in hindsight, I'm like, look how far you've come, Heather. And so it's with every area of your life. At first, you don't see why you're doing it or it doesn't make an impact, but imperfect inconsistency. And then over time, the compound effect happens and you start to feel lighter and more energized and spacious and alive. And it was so, I was, you know, we've all had our ups and downs, but I went through a period of being angry and I was like, why didn't anybody tell me this? Why did I think there was something wrong with me the whole time when I was just, I had no female mentors to show me what it looked like to parent and feel good. And so that's, really my why behind it of becoming, I want to become the version of the mentor that I needed um, as a woman. Right. Right. Yeah. I love that because I think probably a lot of moms out there are thinking, seriously, you can be a mom and feel good. Like that probably feels like a reach to them. Well, let's just jump into this. So you talk about energetic time management in your book. So what is that? So energetic time management is kind of like the example I just gave you, which is um, it's the, it's the strategy behind it. So like I said, nine years before diagnosis, I was into personal development. I loved it, loved it, love it. 
And there's something called spiritual entertainment. This is a term that I heard over the years where people love listening to the podcast, reading the books, but they don't integrate, you know, it's like, oh, you should do this. And I'm like, well, do you do that? Well, no. Well then don't give advice. Like don't practice if you're not preaching, right? Don't preach if you're not practicing, like become, (laughs) become, do. That is the greatest gift you can give to people, but that's uncomfortable. So post cancer, I was like, okay, I have this story in the book as well, but I remember I was in the bathroom floor and I was on the bathroom floor um, when I came home from the hospital and I had this moment where I was paralyzed in fear and I kept telling myself, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I had this thought where I was like, but you're not dead yet. You're not dead in this moment. You're not dead yet. So how do you want to feel Heather? And I'm like, I want to feel alive. I want to feel alive. So I had to refocus my energy and attention on how I wanted to feel. So energetic time management is about that aliveness. It's that, what's the feeling that you want and desire? So I would take that word and every day I'd be like, what do I need to do today to get more to that feeling goal, that aliveness? Some days it was getting out of bed and taking a shower in the early days. Other days it was getting out of bed, taking that shower, changing my clothes. Now it might be taking a big, bold action that I don't think I'm capable of, but it's really reverse engineering how you want to feel and investing your time into that instead of being very reactionary in your life. Yeah, that's so great. And you talked about in the book is it's deeper than just time management. You want to talk about the difference Yeah, I think we're all very familiar with time management and productivity, um, which feels very external, right? It's like the ROI of like, okay, I invested this. What did I get out of it? And it's like, how do you want to feel in your life? But the strategy behind it is, and people like get so uncomfortable because perfectionism comes out and all of these things, but you have to look at your calendar, and, and then, you know, you put it on the calendar, but then there's a reason why you're not following through with what you're putting on the calendar. Cause that's inevitable because you allowed somebody else to take over your time. You felt emotionally uncomfortable and it's the courage of stepping into the calendar and the space that you truly want to embody and live. So there's layers that you will go through and then you begin to realize Why am I not in alignment in my life? Why do I refuse to invest in myself? Why, why, you know, the instant somebody texts me and I'm in the middle of doing something for me and they're like, it's 911. And the 911 is that they needed a ride and all of a sudden, and you ask them, you know, hey, do you need a ride? And they're like, I don't know. But all of a sudden they need a ride. Why are you cutting off yourself? Why are you killing off a part of yourself to attend to them? And then we teach people how to treat us so they know, okay, if I text her, she's going to pick me up right away. If I do this, this is going to happen. And then we become angry and resentful when really it was our action 
So you begin to take radical responsibility for how you want to feel in your life. And when you begin to take radical responsibility as a human being for how you want to feel in your life, guess what happens? You feel better. When you feel better, your life change changes, your relationships change. And with every, you know, change in a relationship, people are like, who are you? What are you doing? What's going on? It, it's uncomfortable. So it takes time. Yeah. I think a lot of moms fall in the trap of waiting for permission and or thinking that their spouse is going to make them feel better or someone else is going to make them feel better. So we wait and we're resentful. And so I love what you're talking about, about this taking radical responsibility for your life. And it's like just taking a huge shortcut. Like you can decide how you want to feel this week is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And then... <laughs> or you can decide how you don't want to feel this week. Yes. Or you can decide who's going to, you know, it's just, I've had so many stories of women and clients and of course, within myself being reflected back to me and people saying, you're telling me it's that easy. And I'm like, yes, it's just emotionally uncomfortable. I'm like you actually have the answer inside of you. I'm going to guide you to find that answer but I don't, I'm not here to fix you. And I can see it in that coaching relationship too, where they're like, oh, I thought you were God. Like I put you on this pedestal and I, and I'm like, no, we're co-creating together. And when yeah. you show up like that in your life, I don't have all the answers for my son. I don't have, or my boys, but I can help them find those answers within myself. But the more responsibility I take for me and the results in the life that I want, then when I see them mirroring back those behaviors to me, I get to teach them how to take that responsibility too. And you see a lot clearer where we are getting stuck in our relationships. Yeah. You also talk in your book about moms kind of saying all the time, I don't know, I don't know. And so there's this kind of contrast between like you were talking about with the cancer where you knew but you didn't know so can you talk about that because I think a lot of moms are kind of stuck between those two things yeah I think mothering is a label and a role that we play and then you just put it on really tight and zip it up and then you can't unzip it you can't get out of it and the identity is so enmeshed in who you are that you, the cultural narrative is that I can't be anything else. And so we say, I don't know. And when I hear people say, I don't know, it's because they typically haven't given themselves the space to figure it out. And then once they do, they're like, oh, that is incredibly emotionally uncomfortable. And I always say, and I'm sure I did not invent this, and I don't know who to give it credit to, but you get to keep what you defend. So if you defend your, I don't, I don't know, like, I really don't know. I have no idea how I want to feel. I have no idea how to do that. But yet I've given you the strategy and the steps and you refuse to take step number one, or you refuse to take step number two. And you're like, I just don't know. I just don't know. I just don't know. What I'm hearing is it feels unsafe to figure out what I want. 
because I believe that if I do know what I want, or if I say it out loud, my world is going to crumble. Um, I may lose a relationship. What is, you know, the fear of uncertainty happens. But for those who are like, I really don't know. I really don't know. And I'm so excited. And I want to know my like, great. Wouldn't it be nice if is my favorite journal prompt, because it feels like you're emotionally unattached to the outcome. And when you write down, wouldn't it be nice if, and you just keep writing, wouldn't it be nice if this happened and this and this, you're kind of like nonchalant, like, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? You do know. Yeah. Now you have to start acting on that list. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't it be nice if I could have a glass of water? Wouldn't it be nice if I could go for a walk? Wouldn't it be nice if I could have a bath tonight? Wouldn't it be nice if I didn't have to work on Fridays? Wouldn't it be nice if someone else made dinner three nights a week? Write it down. And then present, make it happen. Look at one of those things and say, I'm going to try this. And then the courage to do two of those things and three of those things. And slowly you're like, crap, I did know what I wanted. Yeah, that's a great journal prompt. Very useful. Yeah. And I think it's super important, moms, even though it feels selfish, all of this is just tied together, but like if you did know, or wouldn't it be nice if you knew, and you start to know, and you start to lean into that knowing, it's so important because you want to model that for your daughters, especially, because you don't want your daughters growing up and they don't know either. And I hear, I work with a lot of teens and college girls, and they always tell me, I don't know, I don't know. And so I think women are socialized in some ways to not know. So I think moms, you can, this is a huge gift, not only to yourself, but to your children. Change a little bit from what we've been talking about. So can you explain the red, yellow, and green zones and how we can use them in life and parenting? Yes, the zones of regulation um, are <clears throat> very popular in like occupational world. And I did not know why. I think I just kind of thought about, I didn't learn about them formally, but I was, I'm such a visual learner. And I was always thinking about, you know, traffic lights. We always know what to do in the green. You go. The yellow caution, you know, you're going to have to slow down soon. And the red is stop, stop what you're doing. And in the early days of understanding my oldest son's behavior, when he was around four years old, I started diving into conscious parenting and mindfulness and all of that. And I was starting to pay attention that when he was in his red zone, which would be when he was throwing, you know, toys across the room or he's whatever, or when I'm yelling and I'm losing it or I'm burnt out or I'm tired, that we were in our red zone. And that was the time to stop. That is not a time to... Uh, your brain does not function properly. It's not a time to solve problems. And <clears throat> in the green zone, it's intriguing to me because the green zone is when you actually feel good. So if people actually give themselves permission to live in the green, that's when they like neglect their habits. They're like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. And then they go into a red. And so you can go from green, yellow, red all day long emotionally um, I hear a lot from people that they go from green to red and they don't have a yellow zone, like an emotional yellow zone. They're like, Heather, my child just goes from green to red and I don't know what happened. And I always say, that's when you're not paying attention. So the awareness comes when you can identify a yellow zone in your life and you're like, ooh, 
before I yell, I, um, I'm getting a little irritated and I can feel that irritation coming up in my chest. I'm getting a little short and sometimes it's a few minutes. Sometimes it's a few days. Um, sometimes it's a few hours. It depends on the situation. But when you can identify the yellow zones in your life, that's when your, you know, your cue is to stop, to realign, to reassess and to pay attention. How did I get here? You know, what, what happened before this, what happened, you know, and that's the, that's the self-awareness. That's the independence, you know, people can guide you and teach you on the zones, but you're really the only person that's going to identify what your zone is and also to identify your children's behaviors. So I know that in the morning, well, not now, but in the morning when we would have like the rush to school, it would, you know, we'd go from green to red. And I was like, what is, what's the yellow? What's happening here? And my son would always have issues with his socks. Like could not, could like, it was ridiculous. So I'm like, what is your favorite sock? I'm going to go buy 50 pairs of your favorite socks. And I'm, <laughs> I'm throwing out all the other ones so that we would go from green to red. And then, but on a bigger scale, look at every area of your life. Are you living in the green? Are you like, my health is on point. My money, feeling great about it. My time, feeling great about it. These relationships are awesome. If something feels like it's in the red, like, ooh, my health really needs my energy and attention, then you pay attention to that. So these zones are like the regulation of I want everything in the green. I understand that I'm going to go up and down all day long, but the goal is green and to identify the yellow and to get out of the red. That's great. What I love about what you just said is that if you're in the yellow zone or red zone, there's no shame about that, that you, those can be useful and they have information for you. And so the important thing here is the awareness of where you are. So let's talk about some different kind of zones, like the comfort zone and the brave zone mm -hmm. and how the comfort zone, why that's not great for you. I mean, sometimes comfort is, but it can sometimes hold you back. And what about the brave zone? Yeah. So I have to find this quote, but I feel like I've heard before that people think they're seeking freedom but what they're actually seeking is comfort. And we want to feel free. We want to feel abundant. We want to feel alive and energized, but truly we want to feel comfortable. And it's, you know, for a lot of people, they have different barometers of what comfort is, you know, like I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at in certain areas of my life right now, but I have big dreams and desires and goals so I physically have to get myself uncomfortable and put myself in uncomfortable situations in order to grow. And so I call that the brave zone. It's that messy middle. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I'm sure, you know, children are put in these situations if they're in like sports or something like that or really challenged. But I don't think we understand until adulthood like that what's happening in that brave zone. So unconditioning yourself that it's messy and imperfect and you're going to fail. You're going to feel awful. Like that has been my journey. And like all through parenting where I'm sitting there having that uncomfortable conversation, or I'm holding that boundary with my child. And inside, I'm just like, 
my God, I just want to fix this or I just want to do it myself. Like that is the brave zone because that's where your brain is literally rewiring itself, right? So simple, simple, simple things. I do this constantly. And then sometimes I'm like, you know what? I've been brave for a very long time. I'm, I'm tired (laughs) of being brave. So I'm going to, I'm going to like go slip back into my comfort zone a little bit. Um, and then you re-enter again. Right. So, and it's not about like pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. It's not about that. It's just, you know, little tiny things. Like an example is this last year, I really challenged myself with my physical movement, like, you know, fitness. And I had, I hired us like an expert who pretty much scared the crap out of me. And, (laughs) you know, part of it was, I can't do this all or nothing mentality. I really want to feel strong and alive in my body, but you can burn yourself out. You can push too much. And so there's a comfort zone where I'm like, Oh, I'll do it later. I'm in my comfort zone. I'll do it later. And then the brave zone where I'm like, you know what, maybe I have this hour workout that I'm supposed to do, but mentally I feel like I only have five minutes. Okay. Show up for five minutes. And then when you're in that five minutes, maybe you can do six minutes and maybe that it was incredibly uncomfortable for you that day. And no, you're not going to have six pack abs. Who cares? That's not why you're doing it anyways. But then when you push that envelope every single day, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, you can do it an hour workout. No problem. You have to push, you know, the, the comfort zone. That's the brave zone. I love it. I love it now. And we expect our teens to do that. And I think sometimes as moms, we can feel like we're kind of above that, but we quit growing if we don't do that. So And I I love just what you shared. That's great. And I want to just to piggyback off of that, like raising a 16 year old right now, you know, and he's like, I want to sleep in. And in my head, I'm like, you wake up at noon. What does that mean? (laughs) Like, I wish I could sleep in till noon. I'm like, no, I don't. But I'm also like, Heather, there is a developmental stage there where your brain, you know, their brain needs more sleep and they're staying up later. They're doing whatever. So where do I push right? Him to get outside of his comfort zone. And where do I let it be? So you have that play. But the beautiful thing is I can have compassion, right? I can have compassion for like, here's your resistance. And it's not so much about the sleeping in, but maybe about, you know, making himself a smoothie or like being a little proactive with certain things. And then feeling that resistance and going, I know what it's like to feel resistance too. And I know what my tantrums look like. So it's truly about having compassion that they are human beings and not just something I need to control and manipulate. We're just here to like, you know, support and challenge each other. Yeah. And he calls me out on my stuff all the time. And then sometimes I'm like, you're trying to emotionally manipulate me. No, you got to get up and get out of bed and clean your room. Oh, that's so good. So I loved chapter seven, angels all around us. Can you talk a little bit about that chapter? You had a pretty powerful story in there. Mm. I'm always like, yes, what did I write in that chapter? I know you're talking about, but I'm always <laughs> intrigued. I'm like, oh crap, what, what was chapter seven about? <laughs> um, I had a moment in treatment when, you know, I, I always had this belief. Well, I grew up Roman Catholic, but I wasn't practicing and a Roman Catholic. So I had beliefs around God. And I was very triggered by the word God post post that, but I always knew that there was something bigger than me. 
And so I'm very open to people's beliefs. And I also, I think we're all saying the same thing in different language. And we just come to our own home of what that looks like. Growing up, I've always been very attuned to energies. And I remember um, having this moment in the hospital. Every I spent a lot of time by myself in the hospital because my husband was at home with the kids and I had to be in isolation. And it was one night where sometimes I would wake up feeling like, you know, you're just paralyzed in fear, that middle of the night panic. And there was this one night where I woke up and I remember feeling or seeing um, what I assumed were angels coming in and out of my room, this white light. And it felt like I was surrounded by these people and they were come, I couldn't see them. It was just like an energy and they were coming in and out of the room, almost like they were on shift work, like, okay, take over for me. And, and it, what I called was a plucking where I felt like they were plucking old beliefs out of me and inputting new ones inside of me. And I had this, I felt so peaceful, like so peaceful. I felt safe. I felt, um, content and very surrendered that if I did die that evening, I was okay with it. And I knew everybody was going to be okay. But I woke up knowing that I was going to be fine. Like that deep, 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 deep knowing. So anytime I was triggered, like something bad's going to happen. And so, yeah, it was like a deep, deep surrender. And, and now I'm just like, wow, it, every life is so beautiful. And you know, when people pass, I always say they're getting promoted. I'm like, yeah, man, it's like a, it's like a, a video game and they've gone to the next level. Like I'm jealous. I'm jealous. I'm like, it's better over there. But this deep surrender of like, I'm going to be okay. If I can just learn how to control my emotional state, if I can just learn how to feel alive and connected to that deep, deep source it was, it was interesting because I could see other people's worry and doubt for me, but I wasn't attached to it anymore. I was like, Ooh, that's your stuff. That's not my stuff. I'm not going to take your worry. And like, oh, I should be worried. I'm like, I think I had access to something that a lot of people, you know, didn't see. And, um, yeah, it was beautiful. I love that story. It's beautiful. All right. So do you have any more advice for our moms? I always tell people, you were a soul and before you were a woman, and then you became a mother. And I believe that the more we get back to ourselves and our essence of who we want to be, that's what the world needs from us. That's the secret we're all looking for. The roles that we play are not who we are. It's just something that we do in the world. And I think women can move mountains if we are aligned and if we feel good. So feeling good may feel selfish, but it is the, it's the gift that we're all searching for and it's how we're going to change the world. So be courageous and piss people off by feeling good. That's a great place to end. (laughs) So uh, how can they contact you and if they want to stay in touch with you and how do they get your book? And then, you have a workbook with that. Mm-hmm. So you want to talk about that? Yeah. So I'm really active on the podcast. Mom is in control. Um, the book dying to be a good mother. Uh, you can purchase anywhere books are sold online. 
The workbook can be downloaded at dyingtobeagoodmother.com. And yeah, if you hang out on Instagram, just find me at Heather Chauvin. All right. Well, thanks, Heather, for your time. Thank you so much. This concludes this week's episode of Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast. If this podcast has been helpful, I would absolutely love it if you could go to Apple Podcasts and give Power Your Parenting Moms with Teens podcast a five-star review. This makes it easier for other moms like you to find the support and encouragement they need. Also, my best-selling and award-winning book, Dial Down the Drama, Reducing Conflict, Reconnecting with Your Teenage Daughter, A Guide for Mothers Everywhere. You can find that and order it online at Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And you can always find other great resources and contact me at ColleenOGrady.com, two L's and two E's. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.